right, let's pray. Lord, we praise your name. We praise the name of the Lord our God. God, help us as we come to your word right now, please. We think your word is living and powerful like a fire, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. God, we love your word. You have given us guidance, Lord. You've given us wisdom and truth. And more than anything, man, more than anything, Lord, you've shown us the man Christ Jesus. You've shown us Christ. We love your word. Father, we love your word. Please help us now to hear. Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word. Help us to hear as those longing to worship and longing to obey. We submit to you, Lord. We surrender and submit our lives to you. You are our King. You're King of glory, King of the universe. So we submit to you, Lord, as we read these things this morning. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to do a little bit of an overview before we read uh, Acts 26, an overview of this chapter. Um, again, there's a lot here, so I'm going to try to speak fast, and so I need you to listen fast. Um, an overview, let me just give you a, a statement as an overview, it's there on the top of your study guide. In Acts 26, we see Paul standing before the king and governor, defending himself against false accusations and declaring the gospel of salvation. So there we see him standing before king and governor. We see him defending himself and declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as we're going to read Acts 26, as I said, he's standing before the king and the governor. What a platform he's been given to defend himself and to herald the truth. And the question should rise in your heart of where did he, uh, how did he get this platform to speak before king and governor? How did he get this platform? Number one, it was through suffering. And number two, through the providence of God. So he, he got this platform to speak before the king through suffering and through the providence of God. Let me remind you of Paul's suffering that brought him to this point. Acts 21, he shows up in Jerusalem. He's falsely accused. He's beaten within an inch of his life. He's uh, unjustly brought before trial. He's unjustly thrown into prison. He's uh, unjustly left there for two years under Felix. And then Festus comes to take Felix's place as governor. And there he's still there. Festus wants to do the Jews a favor. And Paul's left there, an innocent man in jail. And he's left there. And this suffering has brought him to this point where King Agrippa, as we're going to read in a moment, King Agrippa is going to come and visit the new governor, Festus. And, and Festus is going to say, look, this Paul has appealed to Caesar. He's about to head to Rome. Go see Caesar. I'm going to send him there. And I need something to write about this man. I need something to send about this man. King Agrippa, could you give me some advice here? And so he's about to stand trial before King Agrippa and Festus. And it's his suffering. It's his suffering that got him to this place. Now, I think that's interesting that 
Uh, you know, you hear about people today, uh, Christians today, talking about how we need to build our platforms uh, through social media. And here we see God building a platform to speak the truth through suffering. This is the way God does it. There's a, there's a verse that we read last week, and I want to read it again in Luke 21. Don't, don't feel the need to flip there, but Luke 21 verse 13 says this. Listen, excuse me, verse 12. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. Did you hear the suffering there? You'll be brought before kings and governors, persecuted for my namesake. Listen to the next sentence. This will be your opportunity. This is the way God gives a platform. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So suffering is an opportunity to, to bear witness. And we see Paul about to walk into that bearing witness through this opportunity of suffering before king and governor in Acts 26. Now also, you know, as, we, as was taught last week, we see God's providence at work here. God's providence, His sovereign providence. He is in control of every single detail of life. Every minute detail, God is in control. There's not a leaf that falls from a tree to the ground in the wrong spot. God controls it all. He is provident God. And in His providence, He has brought Paul to this place where he's about to speak defense and declaration of the gospel to the king and to the governor. God has worked everything out. What they meant for evil, as it says in Genesis, what they meant for evil, God meant it for good to bring it about this day that the gospel might go forward to king and governor in Acts 26. I was thinking about, uh, as I thought about the providence of God and God using all things, designing every event, even what seems like hard things. And I was thinking about uh, maybe, maybe this analogy, because, you know, Paul could have planned, uh, you know, let me make a plan. How can I get the gospel to the king? How can I get it to the governor? He could have made some sort of plan to do that and it would have probably failed. And in his plan would not have been jail time. Okay, that wouldn't have been in his plan. And so God says, oh, here, I got a plan to get the, to the, to get the gospel to the king. And, 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 it's, and it involves jail time and beating and suffering and all those things. So I was thinking about this. You imagine if all of us, Grace Community Church, all almost 200 members of Grace Community Church, we said, you know what we're going to do? Let's sell it all here. Let's leave here. Let's all go to Erbil, Iraq. And let's take that city for the gospel. Let's go make a plan. And all of us, all almost 200 of us, let's go just to Erbil, Iraq, take the city for the gospel. Now, if we did that, we're studying the Bible. How do we do this? How do we do this? And we land there and, and, and we say, you know what we should do? We shouldn't all just kind of get in one little spot and one little commune. We shouldn't do that. But, but scripturally speaking, we should spread out. I mean, we should just try to live all over the city in different places of the city. And this way, that way we can uh, be in touch with lost people all over the city. We should get different kinds of jobs all over the city. Not just one thing that we're doing, but just spread ourselves out around the city to take that city for Jesus Christ. And that would be our plan. And it would probably fail. But it's interesting. Think about this. That's what God has done here. 
Without you even knowing it, without you even planning it. I didn't plan it, you didn't plan it. But here we are in the Jackson metro area and God has spread us out all over the place, giving us jobs as nurses and construction workers and doctors and lawyers and all kind of stuff all over the place to take this city for the gospel. God's working all these things for His prov- in His providence, in His sovereign control. And so we see this here, that here's, here's the Apostle Paul And because of the providence of God, not His planning, and because of suffering under the providence of God, here He stands before King and Governor. Now, again, before we read this, I want to put before you two major observations that you need to see. Two major observations you need to see that are sort of overview observations about Acts 26. Number one is Paul's innocence. Paul's innocence from the beginning when when acts 26 is set up to the very end we see paul being proclaimed as innocent he didn't do anything wrong he didn't deserve this imprisonment these injustices he's an innocent man now we see it in acts 25 verse 25 as they're getting ready to meet paul king and governor he says this in 25 25 but i found that he had done nothing deserving of death And as he himself appeared to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. So here's a a declaration, as we've seen over and over again in Acts, especially at the end. That man is innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. And then we see it, that's at the beginning of our text. What about the end of our text? Look at 26, verse 30. This is after Paul has stood trial before king and governor. And it says this in verse 30. This is the conclusion. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, Those are the ones that were standing in judgment. Listen to what they say. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And King Agrippa said to Festus, that's the king to the governor, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So here we've got... Paul, is, is, his innocence is being put on display. This man has done nothing wrong. Now why is that so important? Why is it so important? This is kind of like a minor theme through the book of Acts. That Paul the Apostle is being put forward as an innocent one. Especially at the end here. These five defenses we've talked about. He's being put forward as one that hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't done anything deserving of death or imprisonment. Why is that important? It's important because Satan aims to discredit Christianity and discredit the gospel by discrediting, discrediting these witnesses like Paul. He did it. He's doing it here with Paul as slander goes forward about this man. And he does it continually today. The scripture says that they will speak against you as evildoers. And so for the, for the advancement of the gospel, for the advancement of the truth of the gospel, the protection, defense of the gospel, Luke is writing out the book of Acts. And this is like a defense of this man's innocence. He's done nothing wrong. Okay, that's one overview observation. The second one is this. A Christian boldly and relentlessly striving to win souls. So if the first observation is Paul's innocence, the second one is Paul's example for us as an evangelist. This is an example of biblical evangelism in Acts 26. This is a Christian boldly and relentlessly striving 
to win souls. So he's not only defending it. We're going to read it. He's not only defending himself in Acts 26, but he, he we see him turn a corner at some point in Acts 26, and he begins to, to try to persuade this man to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a really sweet thing to read, to read this example. Proverbs, Proverbs 11.30 says, He who wins souls is wise. He who wins souls is wise. And Paul was obsessed with soul winning. Absolutely obsessed. He was relentless. Acts 21, he is beat to death. And what does he do? He's carried to the top of the stairs, beaten to death, and says, here's an opportunity, and preaches the gospel to the people that just beat him. He's relentless. He stands in the Sanhedrin and preaches the risen Jesus. He stands before Governor Felix and preaches the risen Jesus. He stands before Festus now and he preaches the risen Jesus. And now King Agrippa and Festus. And he's going to do the exact same thing. He is relentless with his gospel preaching to win lost souls. And he's doing it with boldness. I want us to see the example of his boldness. Think about where gospel preaching has gotten him so far. It's gotten him in prison. It's gotten him beaten. And now this man could take his head off and still he's going to rise up in Acts 26 and herald a bold gospel to this man. It's beautiful. And it's an example for us to follow. As I was studying this, I came across the story of a guy named Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer in the 1500s was one of the uh, bold preachers of the gospel. A reformer in the 1500s uh, ended up dying by being burned at the stake. And there was a situation where King Henry VIII uh, actually heard one of his sermons, heard him preach, and man, it offended him. It, he was, the king was displeased at Hugh Latimer. He, he, he did not like what he had to say. And so he said, look, this is, what, this is what the king ordered. I want Hugh Latimer to preach again next Sunday, but he needs to apologize for the previous sermon. And so Hugh Latimer steps up the next Sunday, and this is how he begins his sermon. He's talking to himself. Hugh Latimer, do you know before whom you are this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king, most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend him. Therefore, take heed not to speak a word that displeases. But consider well, Hugh. Do you not know from where you come, upon whose message you are sent? The great and mighty God who is all present, who sees all your ways, and who, who is able to cast your soul into hell. Therefore, take care to deliver the message faithfully. Then he preached the same sermon from last week. It says, it says with more energy. <laughs> and so Hugh Latimer is an example for us, and I believe also Paul the Apostle is an example for us as a bold Evangelist, a bold proclaimer of the gospel. And here's what I want to do. I want to move to the content of, of Paul's defense and declaration. Now we see that in chapter 26, verse 1 through 23. We see the content. And it can really, for the sake of clarity, I want to do this. It can be broken up into five parts. This content in verse 1 through 23. It's, right, it's everything Paul is saying until he gets interrupted. Which we'll look at that in a minute too. But we're going to break up verse 1 through 23 into... Five parts, okay? So number one, we're going to see Paul give a respectful call to the king to listen. Listen. Here it is in verse one. So Agrippa said to Paul, 
You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make this defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Here's a respectful call. Now, this man, King Agrippa, this, this, this hearing from Paul the Apostle, does he deserve the respect that you heard in those words? Because you hear respect here, and yet he's saying, I'm telling you, listen to me, King. Listen to me, but he's speaking to him with respect. Does, has he earned that respect from Paul? And if you understand this man's life, you know the answer is no. He's a wicked, evil man that has not earned this respect. But because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul is able to honor someone that does not deserve honor. You know, that's how we all are, right? That every single one of us do not deserve respect, honor, grace, mercy, anything from God. Because we are rebellious in our hearts against Him. And yet God shows His love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And that gospel means we can turn to other people that are undeserving and give them respect as we call them to listen to us. We can speak to them and even honor them. And so you have this respectful call to listen. So He gets Agrippa's attention. He says, please hear me out. Please listen to me. And then he begins to speak to King Agrippa. And the first thing that he does, and this is the second section we're going to break this up into, and this is verses 4 through 8. Verse 4 through 8, we're going to see Paul begins to explain what this trial is really all about. Why are we here? Why am I on, why am I on trial before you, King Agrippa? Let me explain what this trial is really all about. Let's read verse 4 through 8. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now, I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers. To which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O King. Why is, this, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So the first thing that Paul says in, in, the, in the first two verses, verse 4 and 5. The first thing that Paul says, he says, here's why I'm not on trial. This is, this is what it's not about. This is not about me being a rebel or a renegade or a criminal deserving of death. He says, listen, if they're willing to testify, those Jews know. They know that I lived as a Pharisee, the strictest sect. I lived in holiness before them. They know that. So this is not about my criminal record or about me being rebellious. It's not about any of that. So what's it all about? And you get to verse 6 through 8 and he tells us what it's all about. Verse 6, look at it again. And now... I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Now think about what that means. Why, why King Agrippa, let me tell you why I'm on trial today. Because I don't just read the promises of the Old Testament. I really believe them. I don't just read them. I don't just know about them. But my hope is truly in those promises. 
Verse 7 tells us the 12 trials, they seem to claim, they claim to believe it, but they don't align themselves in real faith with the, with the fathers of old. But Paul says, I do. I come from that line of people that have believed the promises of God from the Old Testament till now. And he said, that's why I'm on trial. Well, what promises? What promises is Paul referring to here? It's the promises that there's going to be. It's Old Testament promises, many of them. That there's going to be a Messiah that comes through the Jewish people. And He's going to reign as King forever. And he said, I believe those promises and I know who that King is. And seriously, it's all over your Old Testament. Start in Genesis, read all the way to Malachi again and again. We see promises that there's coming one that's going to bless all nations. There's coming one that's going to be king forever. There's coming one that's going to be the glorious one that reigns for all of eternity. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9 said, A child is born, a son is given. His name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. The government will be upon His shoulder. He's going to sit upon the throne of David. He's speaking about Christ. And Paul says, here's, here's why I'm on trial. Because I believe those promises. I didn't just read them. I believe those promises. Reading promises never gets you in trouble. It never gets you persecuted. It's believing them that gets you persecution. And he says, I believe them. And I know that Jesus is the fulfillment of them all. These 12 tribes are looking for the fulfillment of these promises. But when the fulfillment came in Christ, they not only ignored it, but they opposed Jesus Christ. They opposed Him, King Agrippa. They opposed Him. They came against Him. And Paul says, I believe in this one. Now some people might argue, yeah, but He died. This Jesus that you say is the fulfillment, Paul, He died. That's what Festus said in the chapter 4, right? It's all about this Jesus who's dead that Paul keeps saying is alive. In Acts 25. But Paul, He's dead. How can He be the King forever if He's dead? Paul argues like this. That's the point. That the prophet Isaiah said that that Messiah is going to come. And before He reigns as King, He's going to go to a cross. And when he goes to a cross, he's going there because if he doesn't, everybody goes to hell. He's going there to be wounded for our transgressions, Isaiah said. Crushed for our iniquities. He goes there to the cross to be our substitute. Taking God's wrath in our place. To be our propitiation. To be our sacrifice. Jesus, yes, he died. But listen to me. It's what I'm here to tell you. That he rose from the dead three days later, King Agrippa. He rose from the dead and He is alive and He is King eternal. And he says, you know what? That's why I'm on trial. I'm on trial because I believe that. I line up with the promises of the Father. Third section here. As Paul moves forward, as he's speaking to Agrippa and the governor and the other people there. Now we're going to see number three. Paul speak of his past life prior to his conversion. Look at verse 9 through 11. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often. In all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign 
cities. Now you think about how evil this man is. He's saying, I want to, I want to get you, King Agrippa, let me give you a little gaze into my past life. This man is evil. He not only persecuted them, he arrested them. He not only arrested them, but he cast his vote against them when they were put to death. He says he has raging fury on the inside and he's trying to drive these Christians to blaspheme. This is an evil man. Now why would he say these things? Why would he, why would Paul tell of his past? And telling of his past accomplishes two things for Paul. Number one, it accomplishes this. Paul is connecting with his accusers. His, his accusers are are. are Persecuting him. And Paul looks at Agrippa and says, Look, I, I'm not better than them. I'm just like them. I did the same thing they did. And just like I needed to repent of my sins, so do they. He connects with those accusers. I'm not better than them. In fact, my past is just like what they're doing to me right now. And the second thing that we see that this accomplishes, we look at Paul's past, is this. Who do you know that is out of the reach of God's salvation? Who's too evil? Who's too evil to be outside the reach of God's salvation? Festus, the governor? King Agrippa? Anybody in this room? Is anybody in this room out of the reach of God's salvation? When God saved this man that pushed Christians to blaspheme and was a murderer? In 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, Paul speaks like this. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. And He saved me so that that mercy might be known to all. So that all might see the mercy of God and know that they too can be saved. If He saves the chief of sinners, He'll save any. No one's outside the reach of Christ's salvation. And number four, fourth section in Paul's uh, defense and declaration to the king and governor. Fourth section. We're going to spend a little more time here. We're going to see Paul speaks about that moment where it all changed. He's going to speak about now his life-changing encounter with Jesus. Now let's read about it in verse 12 through 18. <clears throat> in this connection... Speaking about persecution, he was poured out on the believers. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground... I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the, your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now in this section, there's a lot here. 
There's a lot of things, several things we need to see here. I want to mention four of them. So, four sub points under point four. That makes sense. I want to mention four things I want you to see from verses 12 through 8. And number one is this. Paul is putting himself forward as an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. He's speaking to King Agrippa and the others that are there. And he's putting himself forward as an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we see this so much in the book of Acts, right? Um, you know, you, come, you think about people taking evangelism classes today. Like, hey, how you do evangelism? Let's take a class and learn some things. <clears throat> you imagine doing that during the time of the book of Acts. Like, uh, could you teach me how to do this? And Paul's like, well, tell him I saw him. I saw him risen from the dead. And you see that over and over in the book of Acts. I saw him risen from the dead. Yeah, they preached the cross. They preached the cross diligently and zealously. But they also preached the resurrected Jesus and eyewitnesses that saw him. Yes, he died, but the tomb is empty. We saw him with our own eyes. And you see that all through the book of Acts. That, that just like Paul here, people putting themselves forward as eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. So that means, imagine King Agrippa hearing this. He's got a choice to make now. He just said, Paul just said, listen, King Agrippa, you know his tomb is empty. Everybody knows that. But here's the thing. Why is it empty? Why is it empty, King Agrippa? It's empty because he's risen from the dead. How do you know, Paul? I saw him. He appeared to me on the road to Damascus. I saw him. And Agrippa's got a choice to make. Either Paul is a liar, or he's a lunatic, or Jesus is Lord. And he's looking, I imagine Agrippa trying to figure out this situation. Man, this, this guy didn't seem like a liar. I don't know that he would just lie to me like this. He doesn't seem crazy, although, you know, Festus in, a little bit, in just a little bit is going to say he's crazy. But he doesn't seem like a lunatic, so could it be? Could it be that he really did see this man rise from the dead and Herod Agrippa, King Agrippa, has got to deal with this. He's got to deal with these facts. And all of us have to deal with that. We have to deal with this fact that a real man in history, Paul the Apostle, a real, listen, a real man in history, saw the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone has to do that. He's either a liar or he's crazy or Jesus is Lord and risen from the dead. Which is it? Now, you don't just have to deal with Paul's testimony, but you also have to deal with Peter. Is he a liar, a lunatic, or is Jesus Lord? Which one is it? You have to deal with, with uh, uh, you know, Andrew and James. And, and, and 1 Corinthians 15 says over 500 eyewitnesses saw him walking on earth again after he was dead in the tomb. Now, either they're all just conspiring together to, to do one marvelous lie, or all of them went nuts at the same time. Or there might be something to this. Maybe they saw this man risen from the dead. And on top of that, what about thousands in this time period? What about thousands and thousands of Jews? Jews who began to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, convert to Christianity, and bow down to Jesus as God. How do you explain that? Are they all lying to us? Are they all lunatics? Is that what it is? Or is Jesus Lord? Did they see Him risen from the dead? And everyone, including Agrippa, has to deal with this. And so Paul presents what we just read to him as eyewitness testimony. Now let me go to the second thing I want you to see from verse 12 through 18. We also have a reference here to Paul's conversion. 
This is where it all changed. Paul is converted right here, okay? This appearance of Jesus marks Paul's conversion when the greatest persecutor of the church became the greatest proclamator of the gospel. Can you imagine that? Now you imagine the enemies of the cross, those who hate Jesus, those who want this movement of the way, they want it squashed. You imagine them, they're just perplexed. Why in the world did Paul the Apostle just go from the greatest persecutor to the greatest preacher of the gospel? Why did this happen? They're perplexed thinking, what is going on here? I mean, is he just fond of leaving prestige and wealth and power and all that he has and leaving it for a life of beatings and arrests and running for his life and eventually, eventually killed and persecuted? Is that what he wants? Or is there something to this? Did this man see Jesus really? What, what flipped him like this? Did this man see Jesus risen from the dead? And many people believe his testimony. It's a very, very persuasive testimony. Now, what exactly took place? It's kind of on the outside. What took place on the inside at Paul's conversion? So we're seeing Paul's conversion here. What took place? What do we mean he was converted? What happened on the inside? And I want you to think about this for just a minute, okay? So, so Jesus, as we're going to read, we read this moment ago, Jesus is sending Paul to open people's eyes, it says in verse 18, and several other things. And if we read that verse, we're getting a picture of this is what it means that Paul was converted. Look at, look at verse 18. This is conversion. To open their eyes. Listen, Paul was blind. He could not see the desperate state of his own soul and his own sin. He thought he was fine. He was blind. He could not see the glory of Christ. He might have known facts about Christ, but he couldn't see the beauty of Christ. He was blind. But at conversion, his eyes were open and he saw his own sin and his desperate need for a Savior that if he didn't have a Savior, he's going to go to hell. And he saw the beauty of Jesus Christ and the beauty of the cross that Jesus was crucified there for me so that I could be set free. This is conversion. His eyes were open. What else does it say? Look at verse 18. So that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God. That's conversion. That he was taken from darkness. Paul was in darkness, but he's been brought into the light. That he was under the power of Satan, but he's been released from the power of Satan and brought under the power of God. Glorious things are happening inside Paul and in his life right now as he's being encountered by Jesus. What else does it say? Verse 18. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. Man, he had some sins racked up on his record before God. Sin after sin after sin piled mountains high. And Jesus erases it because he takes all that sin on his record. And Jesus died in his place. Risen from the dead. And now he's Paul's Savior. And he stands forgiven before his God. He's converted. One more thing in verse 18. And a place... That he might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul had faith in Jesus and he was set apart as he belongs to Jesus. Paul belongs to Jesus. He didn't belong to Jesus. Now he belongs to Jesus. And this is Paul's conversion. Has that happened to you? Everybody in this room, has this happened to you? That your eyes have been opened. 
That you've received forgiveness of sins. That you've been sanctified and set apart for Christ. That you can see it in your life. You go from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Has this happened to you? This conversion of your soul? Well, here's where it happened for Paul. And he's presenting these things to King Agrippa. Let me take you to a third point that I want you to know from verse 12 through 18. We see here a warning for anyone that would oppose the church. A warning for anyone who would oppose the church. Now, anybody opposing the church of Jesus Christ should feel warned. King Agrippa should feel warned. Governor Festus, you should feel warned about this. And they're about to know why. Because Paul's preaching it. They're going to know why. They should feel warned. Any government that seeks to silence Christians should feel warned. You know why? Because what does Jesus say right here? What happens? There's the greatest persecutor of Christians in the land. And it says at midday, when the sun is at its highest place, Jesus shows up and He's shining brighter than the sun. And He says this. He says, why are you persecuting not my church? Why are you persecuting me? He says. Why should Agrippa feel warned? He should feel warned because to oppose the church of Jesus Christ is to oppose the King Himself. The one that speaks planets into existence. The King reigning on His throne. You oppose His church, you're opposing Him. And not just that, Jesus says to them, He's trying to help them see how silly this is. It is hard for you, Paul, to kick against the goads. You understand that phrase? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads, imagine this long shaft, this long stick with a point at the... Think of a cattle prod. Like a spear, maybe. Long stick with a point at the end. And imagine all these goads moving cattle like cattle prods. Moving them, you know, if they try to come this way, they get poked and they go that way. And, and, and Jesus said, Paul, what you're doing, and anybody that would oppose the church, what you're doing, it's like you've got all these goads facing you and these sharp points, and you just rear back and kick it and you get a spear in your shin. You're only, it's silly. You're only hurting yourself. Now, how much of a comfort is this for the church of Jesus Christ? That anyone that opposes the church of Jesus Christ is not just opposing us as we move forward in the mission of proclamation of the gospel. They're not just opposing us. They're opposing the king himself and they're only hurting themselves. They're kicking against the goats. What a comfort to the church of Jesus Christ. Let me give you one more here in verse 12 through 18. Number four, under four. We see here uh, a call, Paul's call from Jesus to witness for Christ. We see that in verse 16 through 18. So we see Jesus appear in verse 12 through 15. And then you get to verse 16 and, and you see Jesus saying, Paul, here's why I appeared to you. And he calls them in to ministry. He calls them in to service to him. And you see that in verse, like I said, 16 through 18. So, so what he's describing to King Agrippa is not just his conversion, but his call into ministry, which is happening uh, simultaneously here. Now verse 16, if you just kind of glance at it with me. It says, But rise and stand upon your feet. Remember, Paul is, and everybody there, they saw Jesus shining brighter than the sun, and all of them fell on their face. They're falling down. They're on the, they're on the ground. And, G, and Jesus says to him, Rise and stand upon your feet. Get up, Paul. Get up. Because for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness. I'm appointing you as a servant and as a witness. 
So, so here's what I want you to see. In, in fact, go, go forward a little bit. Look at verse, uh, at the end of verse 17. It says, I am sending you. So Paul, I'm appointing you as a servant and a witness. And Paul, I'm sending you. I'm sending you. Now listen, none of us in here are apostles like Paul. We're not apostles like Paul. But we are called, if we're in Christ, if you're a Christian here today, you're called to be a servant, witness to Christ. And He sends you into the world for His glory. He sends you into the world with His gospel. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. Sending Him into the world. Now, sent to do what? And this is what I want you to see. Sent to do what? And, and it says in verse 18, to open their eyes. Okay. What's my mission, Jesus? I'm sending you in the world to open their eyes. Now, anything, anything sound off to you about that? You want me to open their eyes? Good, uh, a good reformed theologian looks back at Jesus and says, you know, that's your role. Jesus, you know, the open and honest thing, that's what you do. That's what it said in Acts 16. You open Lydia's heart that she might receive the thing. That's what you do. And you just told me to do it. So uh, Jesus can't do that. Give me another mission. And instead, what do you see here? Now, now listen to me. It is true that God is the one that opens eyes. And there's a sense in which, and, uh, uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't even say this. You cannot open someone's eyes. You can't do it. You can't give sight to the blind. You can't raise the dead. Only God can do this. And yet in the commission that He gives to Paul and that I believe He gives to all of us is this. I'm sending you to open their eyes. Brothers and sisters in Christ, go into a lost world and open their eyes. Now that statement, how should that affect your ministry? It means your ministry is not just to be an information dump. That's not what you're here to do. Yes, you've got information of the gospel and you need to understand that information and you need to pour out that information into the world. But you're not merely an information dump, but you're called to go with an aim to convert souls. Don't, don't say things like, well, I'm not just trying to save anybody. I'm just living my life and hope they see the light. No, you're called to go and persuade men. No, what's, what's it say in, uh, uh, I believe it's 2 Corinthians or 2 Timothy, one of those. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Do you know the fear of God that He's coming one day in judgment? And that people are going to hell forever? And people have not heard the glorious gospel? Or they need to hear it again? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. 2 Corinthians 5, 18, 19, 20. It says we're ambassadors for Christ as though God, listen to the word, we're pleading through us, pleading, be reconciled to God. You see how that affects your ministry? And this is what he's calling Paul to do. Now, let's go to that next heading. The next section, the fifth section, last section in Paul's message before he gets interrupted. <clears throat> Verse 19 through 20, and we're going to see Paul explain uh, his response to this encounter he had with Jesus. Let's read this. Look, this is, this is what he says, how he responded to that encounter with Jesus. He says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent. 
And turn to God, performing these in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, Paul's response to Jesus' call to the ministry, call to serve Him, Paul's response should inform our response. How do we respond? Is how he, we just read how he responded to Jesus appearing. Now, how do we respond to this call from Christ? How do we respond? And in this, I want to give you, as you see there in your study guide, five helps for evangelism. So, five points under point five. I didn't mean to do that. But there it is. Five quick helps for your evangelism. Number one, gospel proclamation is an obedience issue. Paul saw this. Look at verse 19. Oh, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient. Being an evangelist and proclaiming the gospel is an obedient issue. Evangelism is not something just for special forces Christians. It's for all Christians. Evangelism is not just for people with certain kinds of personalities, but it's for all Christians. The scripture says... Matthew 28, 19. Make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Jesus said, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. You see, evangelism, gospel proclamation, this is an obedience issue. Do you see it that way? Paul says, I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision. Second, you see here the content of Paul's gospel. You wonder, okay... I need to have the message right. If I'm going to preach that message, if I'm, not, if I'm going to obey Jesus, then I need to have the message right. Well, he tells you the message in verse 20 and verse 22 and 23. And what does he say there? Verse 22 and 23. He says, look, y'all, listen. I just preached that the Christ would suffer. That's the cross. That's the death of Jesus. And that he would rise from the dead. That's the resurrection of Christ. And you look back at verse 20. He says, I preached that people should repent. And turn to God and do works befitting repentance. So what was his message? Paul preached relentlessly and boldly and over and over again. He preached the message of the cross. What do you preach? He preached the message of the resurrected Jesus. What do you preach? He preached repentance and turning to God and doing works befitting repentance. What do you preach? Is this your message? Is this your message? The message he preaches, is it, your, is, it, is it the content of your message? Third help for evangelism. Depending on God's word. Look at verse 22. I love this little phrase in verse 22. To this day I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both small and great. Here it is. Comma. Here it is. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. I love this. Dependence on God's Word. In your evangelism, dependence on God's Word. Paul could say, look, I ain't saying nothing but what Moses and the prophets said. What they said, I said. I'm just telling you what they said. I'm just preaching the Word of God. What do you depend on in your evangelism? Your articulation? You depend on, on, on your ability to persuade 
Or do you take up God's Word like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Or Hebrews 4.12, living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Do you take up His Word in your evangelism? Where is your trust? And your words are His. Fourth help for evangelism. The source. Where is the source of your power to proclaim? The source of your power to proclaim. Now again, I read that in verse 22. I love this phrase too. Look at it. To this day, I have the help that comes from God. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? I'm standing before small and great. And, and what... Why is Paul, Paul, why are you such a faithful, fruitful evangelist? Why? He says, I had the help that comes from God. It's not about personality. I'm so sick of personality experts. They seem to know everybody's personality so much that they even know the biblical people's personality. You know, Paul was like this and Barnabas was like this. They're not experts. Regardless of personality, he doesn't say, because I'm an extrovert. Why are you so faithful in evangelism, Paul? I'm an extrovert. He didn't say that. He says, I have the help that comes from God. Do you have access to that? If you're in Christ, the answer is yes, yes, yes. Acts 1.8 says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria. Trust Him. Church, trust Him. Take up His Word. Take up this message of the gospel. Take it to the Lord and trust Him that He will help you when you do it. Last one. Uh, number five, help for evangelism is personal pleading. Verse 19. You, you see it in verse 19. Like, no, just notice, just try to imagine that He's speaking. He's got a little bit of an audience here. And then you got the governor there. you got King Agrippa. And Paul, after he says that he saw Jesus and what Jesus said to him, verse 19, he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa. Oh, he's getting personal with him. He does the same thing in verse 12. O King. Same thing in verse 7. O King. Listen to me, King. He's pleading with this man in a, in a personal way. Draw, draw, and, and King Agrippa felt that. Because we're going to read it in just a moment where King Agrippa is going to look at Paul and say, Are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? Are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? He picked up on it. He's pleading with this man. There's a personal pleading here. Just, just like I said a moment ago, we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were pleading through us. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Through us, be reconciled to God. It's more than an... You're more than an information dispenser. Plead with lost souls. That they would come to Christ. Now that's sort of the end of his message. And we'll be quick here. But what happens next? Let me flip that sheet over. We'll be quicker on this side. What happens next? You think maybe this would be the end. But what happens next is you get this sudden interruption. We're going to read about it in verse 24. Look at it with me. Verse 24 through 29. You know, he's preaching. Here he is preaching. He's pleading with this man. And then, boom, interruption. Look at it. Verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. 
King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Except for these changed. So what do we see here? He's preaching. He's pleading. He's, he's giving his defense. He's giving the gospel. And all of a sudden, Governor Festus can't take it anymore. And it says with a loud voice. It tells us that. Loud voice. He speaks up and says, You are nuts. You're crazy, Paul. All this learning is driving you nuts. What a blessing to be called crazy for your proclamation of the gospel. What a blessing. And so then Paul's response, that was verse 24, but Paul's response to Festus in verse 25 through 27 is interesting. Because he says, he says I, I'm, not out of, I'm not out of my mind. I'm not crazy, but what I'm speaking to you, Festus, what I'm speaking are true and rational words. Festus, these are, ra these are very rational words. Not insanity, but rationality. I'm speaking to you rational words. And then, and then he tells them why they're rational words. He says, listen, I know King Agrippa sees this stuff because it was not done in a corner. It wasn't done in a corner. In other words, he's putting forward the public nature of the claims that he's making, the public nature of the Christian claims show that this is not crazy. It's very rational. I'll tell you something that's crazy, that's, that's done in a corner. Things are just done in a corner that just, they don't seem right. There's no way to verify these things. That you can verify the Christian claims, but how do you verify things that are done in a corner? Think about Islam for a minute and, and Muhammad and how Muhammad got his revelation. It's done in the corner. Nobody's there to verify. There's no public eyes, no public scrutiny on what he's saying that he saw. She's done in the corner somewhere. Mormonism, Joseph Smith. She's done in the corner somewhere. Nobody there to verify. No public scrutiny on the things that are being claimed. But Paul says, listen, I'm not out of my mind. These are rational words. Let me tell you why. King Herod knows these things were not done in a corner. They're prophecies that many people can get their eyes on and they have gotten their eyes on. Prophecies about a Messiah that would come. And then Jesus comes and He didn't live in a corner. He lives this famous public life with many eyes, much scrutiny on His life to see Him fulfilling these prophecies. And then He dies, not a death in a corner. He dies a famous death that all see, all see this death. All these people, thousands in Jerusalem know the death of this man Jesus. He's buried in a tomb and it's not done in a corner. They know where He's buried. And He looks at Agrippa and says, Agrippa, Agrippa, you know the tomb is empty. Everybody knows the tomb is empty. Even, even his enemies know the tomb is empty. Agrippa, why? Why is it empty? And you know that it's not done in a corner, but eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness have said they saw him walking on earth again after he was dead in that tomb. Do you understand that? He's saying these are rational words. I'm giving you evidence, friend. And if this man rose from the dead, that changes everything. And yeah, Agrippa, you ought to become a Christian. If he rose from the dead, this changes absolutely everything. 
And so you see in verse 27, real quick, verse 27, Paul, Paul says, King Agrippa. Now, now he's, if, if you read the, first, the two verses before that, he's been talking about a King Agrippa. King Agrippa knows this. King Agrippa knows this. And then verse 27, he looks at him in the eye again. King Agrippa, I know you believe these things. He's just trying to get it. I know, King Agrippa, I know you believe these things. He said, come. And of course, Agrippa picked up on it. Because look at his response in verse 28. And Agrippa said to him, Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He said, I'm on to you, Paul. You're trying to get me to be a Christian. Would you persuade me to be a Christian? And how's Paul going to respond? How's he going to respond? Is he going to deny that? Like some people do. I know. We're not trying to persuade anybody. Just... Is that what he's going to do? Or does he, does he say... Are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, I'm not only trying to persuade you, but everybody else in here. Everybody. I want them all to be Christians. He's unashamedly, unashamedly going out to persuading lost souls to be saved. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do the same thing. Be unashamed in preaching the glorious gospel and trying to persuade souls. Shouldn't they love you more for it? Sure, you'll be persecuted. But shouldn't they love you more knowing that you don't just ignore them as they go to hell? And so the conclusion, I won't say much here, but we've already read verse 30 and 32. The conclusion is Herod hops up, Festus hops up, everybody hops up, trial's over. They meet up and they start talking in verse 30 through 32. And Herod, and, and Herod Agrippa says... That man ain't done nothing wrong. That guy, that guy's innocent. He hadn't done anything wrong. Only reason why he's going to Rome is because he appealed to Caesar. He didn't know that underneath that, God's taking him to Rome. Alright, let me leave you with just a couple uh, takeaway questions. Um, here's what I want to do. I want to send you to the secret place. With an open Bible, maybe a pen and a journal, something, but to the secret place to be alone with God with these two questions that are on your study guide. I want to send you to a secret place. And after going to that secret place, and I know many of you uh, discuss what you see, uh, what God showed you in these, uh, these teachings through Acts, and, and you have a fellowship group you're a part of where you discuss that. I want you to take it in, take these questions in today. And if not there, then take it into just normal conversation, you know, in, in just a minute when we leave here or. Or later on this week in conversation, I want you to take these questions into that. Question number one is this. Does your life undergird the message of the gospel or undermine it? Does your lifestyle, your holiness, does it undergird or undermine the message of the gospel? Remember, at the very beginning, I told you two major overview things here. One was Paul's innocence. And the other one was his example as an evangelist, or boldly, relentlessly uh, seeking to win lost souls. Well, that first one, Paul's, Paul's innocence. This man had a life that undergirded the message that he preached. He came under intense, very, very intense slander. And then his life held up. I want you to take that to a secret place and to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Does your life undergird the message of the gospel or does it undermine it? And then the second question, which is fitting with that second major overview observation. Number two, how can you better align your life as a witness for Christ? Evangelism. How can you better align your evangelism 
to Paul's example. Now, I know there's a lot of things here. You read Acts 26. If you go back over what we're looking at here, you're reading. There's a lot of things to see about evangelism and being a minister for Christ, serving the Lord. A lot to see here. What strikes you? What convicts you? What do you need to change to align yourself with this man's evangelism? What convicts you here? And I encourage you to take that to the secret place and into your conversations in the future. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You so much for Your Word. God, I pray that You would help us to, to not just be hearers, hearers of Your Word, but to be doers of Your Word, Lord. Thank You for this beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, story of conversion, of someone converted to You, Lord, an eyewitness to Your resurrection. A preacher of your gospel. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would conform our lives to the evangelism we see here. That you would conform our lives to that. God, prepare our hearts to suffer. Prepare our hearts for persecution. And Lord, I pray that you would give us lives that can withstand slander so that it cannot stick. And God, for our our sin, Lord. God, we want to live holy lives, so I pray that you would grant us repentance. Repentance as we think about it now. As areas in our lives are revealed, God, of sin, I pray that you would give us repentance, Lord. Help us to live holy lives as preachers of your gospel. Thank you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.